but you can get to, I don't know, 50 million as a turnover in your business. And I thought, well, I kind of know that journey because I've done it. So I'm kind of curious to know what, how do you get from 50 to 100? And that's, that's the journey that I'm hopefully on now. I wanted to know what was the next step. And so I thought to myself, well, if I sell up, I'm never gonna know. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm delighted to be joined today by Doug Baird. Doug is the CEO at New Street Consulting Group, a people advisory firm that helps their clients to find, assess, build, and accelerate teams and leaders who are good, as good in practice as they are on paper. Doug has over 25 years uh, experience in recruitment and professional services. He's created managed companies within interim management, executive search, and leadership consulting. New Street Consulting has been ranked as one of the best small companies in the UK, and they've previously ranked in the Sunday Times Fast Track 100, and Doug himself has been a finalist in the uh, Ernst & Young Entrepreneur Award. Doug, welcome. Thank you for being here. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Thank you, Mark. (laughs) Very much appreciated. I'm delighted to be with you here today. Fantastic. So... Uh, we know each other through Katie Howard, who recommended you to me. Um, I understand Katie's now joined you at New Street Consulting Group. She has, yes, yeah, off to a flying start. Been with us a few months now. Delighted to have her on board. She is uh, definitely a superstar, so you're you are lucky to to have her. Um, she was one of my very first guests on this show way back, episode 15. I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, to, to check it out. It was called How Katie Howard Cross Empowers Women in Recruitment to Excel. And uh, it was just such a t- fantastic interview. And what's special about Katie is that she is a really high achiever, but she's also very down to earth and very you know, grounded and and um, always looking to learn, to improve, and to also share and uh, help help others in our industry. So, um, so I'm really glad that she's connected us. Well, I've got some some uh, big shoes to uh, to follow. If that's the right <laughs> expression. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. She's she's wonderful. Really great in terms of uh, some strong opinions on the D and I agenda. Yes, absolutely. That's one of her um, superpowers for sure is in that, in that area. It is. It is indeed. Okay, fantastic. So um, talk to me about New Street Consulting Group and, and how and why you started the firm, Doug. Well, um, it didn't always be, it wasn't always a New Street Consulting Group. I actually started a company called Interim Partners in 2003. Okay. And back then, we uh, our name kind of said it. We did interim management. We wanted to... Uh, to be what it said on the side of the tin, as it were. And we had a clear route to market. You know, I didn't want to be an executive search firm then because I thought that there was lots of competition. But I did want to deal with the C-suite and I did want to operate with really big corporates, big companies, help them through change. So we were particularly focused on interim management and we grew that business over a number of years. It was really successful. We did really well and uh, I loved it. But uh, I think you reach a point in your career, indeed in the maturity of a business, when you then sort of think to yourself, well, What's next? What are we going to do next? And um, as an entrepreneur, I've always been fascinated by the journey. So uh, a good few years ago, we began to think, you know, what do we really want to do? And we'd started other businesses. And indeed, we, we bought a company called Wicklam Westcott. And that was really our opportunity to pivot towards being a consulting business. Interesting. So let me just uh, clarify. So Interim Partners, you launched in 2003, so quite a w- while ago. And then... Yeah, I'm feeling old. <laughs> Likewise. So um, then is New Street a separate company from that or did it 
did it develop into New Street, like rebrand or? We rebranded. We had um, three or four companies. Uh, we had one called New Street, which was Executive Search. We had one called Interim Partners, which was our core offering, uh, supplying interim managers. We had a little financial services recruitment business called Brightpool that was involved in remediation, but it began to supply, it, it sort of grew and it began to supply contractor teams and agile teams. So I guess we had the beginnings of a range of talent solutions. But uh, uh, back then, we sort of called them all different things. And um, it was a little confusing for us, a bit confusing for the market. So I think we went from an entrepreneurial strategy. How do we make money? How do we seize opportunities to perhaps more of a traditional strategy, which is how do we make this cohesive? How do we um, put our businesses together to have a strong message to market? And I guess the thinking was, we had these small businesses. They were niche. And being niche has its benefits. But it was a little bit like um, three small businesses uh, squeaking in the marketplace and we wanted to bring them together to create an amplification, a bit of a roar in the market as opposed to a squeak. And, uh, uh, and that's what we were doing. And I think over that period of time, um, you know, it wasn't really a case of rebranding to becoming New Street Consulting Group. It was actually pivoting to consulting. It was thinking, what is it we actually want to do as a business? And so we went through all of that thinking about how do we engage with leaders to assess them or, uh, you know, how do we um, help our clients with uh, development projects? These are the sorts of things we did, and, we, and, and that really helped when we bought Wickland Westcott, who specialised in that. So it was, it was putting those things together, putting, those, putting that jigsaw together uh, that has allowed us to pivot to being a consulting business. So where we are today is about um, half our staff are involved in recruitment. We call that talent acquisition, and the other half are involved in talent consulting, and that could be involved in, there could be psychologists, they could be doing assessment work, they could be doing development or, or cultural audits, or they could be providing insight. So we've sort of got a blend of those solutions that we wrap up together to call New Street Consulting Group. Love it. It makes a lot of sense that you have, you genuinely have a range of solutions to offer to help clients solve problems and, uh, and to, to change and, and transform, uh, rather than just having one thing that you have to push, you know, uh, on clients, whether it's quite the, the, the right fit or not. Um, so what's well, the sort of... Sure, sure, like on on that point, you know, I must admit, I loved having one thing. It yeah. was great. It's a, a singular message to market. But what we've discovered is clients don't really want one thing, in our opinion, anyhow. Um, what they want is a solution. They want a range of a range of ideas and they want you to be creative and they want you to think about what's best for them and how it's tailored to them. Mm -hmm. So having a single solution, unfortunately, is, is, is not the strategy that we wish to follow. Well, I do want to dive into that, but first, could you just give me a picture of the size and shape of New Street Consulting Group now? Well, I'm, I'm pleased to say that we're recovering. We're having a strong quarter, touch wood. Um, so I think this year will probably be about 11 million net fee income. Wow, So that will be our best year. Um, so in context, we didn't do so well over the pandemic, I'm sorry to say. I know some businesses did do well. We we. We didn't do as well as we'd hoped. But in 2019, pre-pandemic, we were just shy of 10 million net fee income. So with that sort of size and we're in that sort of 60-odd staff, we hope to be at about 80 by the end of this year. So I think we're, we're not quite an SME of two or three people. We're probably middle size. Would you describe mm -hmm. us as middle size? But we're not too big either. We're sort of on that journey of growing. Beautiful. And I think you have offices in London, Manchester, Leeds. Is that right? That's right. Okay, yes. fantastic. So um, 
I want to talk about how you've successfully grown and because I'm sure there's some really key uh, insights you can provide there. But just while we're on the topic of solutions, um, what you've accomplished actually is, I would say, quite remarkable because often, well, first of all, clients don't always know what they they may think they know what they want and like we need to hire a you know a blank whatever job title um or they think they know how to buy recruiting services or they have a preconceived idea or they've got a, an established process and what you've got actually is much more than that and i'm just wondering how you get in order to be able to sell the range of solutions you've got you have to interface with a company at quite a senior strategic level and get them to open up to you about what their vision is, what challenges they're experiencing, and not get sort of pushed, you know, shunted down to like, let's say, uh, a head of talent or an HR director or even a line manager who's just thinking about their talent needs within their team. How do you create those meaningful strategic conversations at the right level so that that opens the door for everything that you have to offer? Well, that's a good question. I guess we're fortunate in terms of our heritage, which is we were placing interim managers at a senior level. We were placing CEOs with chairs or CFOs or group HRDs, those types of people into organizations. Of course, we're placing more junior, more junior interim managers as well, or, or less senior, I should say. Um, but when you're having those senior engagements and uh, you're talking about interim management, it's generally because they've got a real appetite to change or to bring in some skills that are different to their business. And so not all businesses are in that position. Some obviously have fantastic internal talent teams and their recruitment processes are running very smoothly. Others, they're going through transition, change. They may have bought a big company or merged or whatever is happening on their corporate agenda. And so they're wanting to buy an expertise. Well, when you're having a conversation about, you know, the broader changes in the business and less about the um, recruitment processes, you really get those sorts of insights and it gives you the opportunity to broaden the conversation quite quickly and say, look, we could help you here or we could help you over there. And if, if, they, if they perceive you to be a trusted partner that can provide a good service, then they're open minded. And then it's up to you really to pitch something, you know, create a proposition that's tailored to them, that's really going to help them solve their problems. And uh, of course, each client is different, but you know the, the trick is is to to listen, to engage, to understand, and then to, to craft something that's going to be really suitable for them. But you know we're, we're fortunate; we're not in the we're not in the staffing business. You know we're not one of these great big RPOs that's um, trying to do everything to everybody. Uh, we 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 of course we'll do deal with people right across the spectrum of business, but we we really engage with the C suite. Now that you've explained it, it's so uh, obvious, Doug, but I'm, I'm glad that you spelled it out for me so I can get my head around this. Of course, the your, your original core business of placing interim managers has put you right there in the mix, in the conversation, because I, presumably when companies are hiring an interim manager, it's because they are looking to create some kind of change or transformation. They want an outside fresh perspective. They want someone who's going to, you know, uh, drive change, make significant improvements and, and you know, you know, capture some kind of value or increase in, in ROI. And so it's almost like the candidates you're placing 
can bring you into that organization in, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, they're like the pioneers, you know, uh, going forth. And of course, there may be consulting businesses involved in the, in the, uh, with the organization already. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they, they may not want to or may not have the um, opportunity to put in people at, in, in an executive capacity. Mm. So if you're wanting to introduce, a, I don't know, a director of change and transformation or even a CFO to help with a disposal project, um, you know, those sorts of people, they really need to be within the business and less so from a consulting environment, um, I, I seconded. So what it does is it gives us that insight into the organisation. But, you know, it's not just that. I think we're also fortunate to buy Wickland Westcott, um, which no longer called Wickland Westcott. So you probably don't know the name, but it was a few years ago before it was New Street Consulting Group. And it was a fantastic business because they were involved in, in leadership assessment and development. And so, again, they're talking to the C-suite. And they're talking to them about how do they assess their leaders? What's really good? What are the skills required in their organization? So I think we've come from it, a little bit of a pincer movement from a few different directions. I think it's fortuitous, but um, that happened a little bit of luck as well. But uh, we, do, we do have these two communities of people that we're dealing with that really lead us to the same place, which is, you know, how do we provide those solutions to our clients? And what's brilliant about the way you've structured this is that um, there's a no great opportunity for cross-selling. Once you're embedded in an organization, you have relationships, then you can then introduce other, um, you know, other services. What, I think it's, I, I could be wrong, but I, I've not come across this very often where a, a, a smaller business of, of your sort of size is growing through acquisition. Can you talk to me about wh why and how you, you accomplish that? Um. Well, we wanted to pivot to being something different, and this would have been probably 2017-18 when we were going through these exercises internally as a management team. And uh, I must admit, if I'm really honest with you, I didn't think we were going to be acquiring a company. I thought we were just going to you know, hire a few people and, and go on the journey that way. But uh, we were fortunate. We were introduced to Wickland Westcott. We hit it off with our management team, and so we saw the opportunity to buy them. And, um, you know... In, in, with everything, there is also a little bit of luck and timing in these things. And one of the principles there, he wanted to retire. He'd been in the business 30, 40 years, done a fantastic job, and he wanted to, uh, to move on. So that created an opportunity for us to talk to the existing management team uh, who are still with us, people like Colin Mercer, um, fantastic, uh, experienced psychologist. It was a real opportunity to talk to people like that and say, look, would you like to work with us and join our business? Fortunately, they said yes. Okay, interesting. So your original goal, which I think is the the the, the well-trodden path, if you're going to grow, it's you would then hire people with the market knowledge or the or the you know the skills that you're looking to um, to build into. How did that evolve into this different conversation where you're actually buying the business instead of just building a team? Well, it evolved because they want they were looking for an exit. But I think um, you know it was it was, it was a fantastic opportunity for us because we, you know at the moment we are growing through and growing our service lines through hiring some great people. Um, last week we just had a, a um, somebody uh, who's um, an ex PwC partner within the talent space has agreed to join us. So we can we you know it's fantastic that we can acquire talent like that and introduce them into the business. And I'm sure that will have an impact in a in its own way but if you really want to accelerate 
And if you think about it, we were predominantly a recruitment business wanting to be something different. We had to be honest with ourselves. We didn't have the skills internally to be able to do what we wanted to do. So we had to go out and get that. Um, we had to acquire it because I think it would have been a long road, um, you know, persuading people one at a time to grow iteratively. We just needed to, you know, we saw this opportunity and we saw, hang on a minute, we've got some people here with a completely different skill set. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could work with them? So uh, that, that really allowed us to accelerate our thinking. But, but, you know, around that time, we were still interim partners, New Street, Wickland, Westcott. You know, that was really just one part of the jigsaw that allowed us to go on this journey of pivoting to being New Street Consulting Group. Interesting. So then they, uh, so this is going back, I, what you said, to 2017, so about five years ago. Yeah, it, and, was, it was 18, 19 when the acquisition was going okay. through. So they, they weren't long with us mm. um, before the pandemic struck. And of course, you know, I think it was probably in 2019 that, you know, we thought to ourselves, well, we don't want to rebrand because rebrand seems a little bit superficial. Um, we So we wanted to get the building blocks right first. We wanted to actually have the stuff to be able to go to market to talk about. And we did that. And um, we planned to rebrand in 2020. Obviously, the pandemic sort of arrived and we just carried on on our, on our, on our mission to rebrand. And we did that by the summer of 2020. Got it. Okay. I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge, and it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned £5,000 per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer. So in other words, she got a deposit and her fee was an incredible £20,000, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. So if we can shift gears and look at uh, the process of growing a business, because you've built a really successful business, Doug. Um, now, it's not happened overnight. I mean, you've been at this for over, well, I guess, what what did we say, 20 2003. I don't, I, so. I don't want to say Mark. <laughs> Almost been, 20 it's years. Been that long. Um, <laughs> what do you what do you think have been the key factors, success factors in that uh, journey, Doug, or the key pivot points that you looking back you can think, well, that was a key, you know, <clears throat> uh, driver of growth that we we got that part right. There's been a number of them, you know. I'm wondering if you're going to ask me all the stuff I've got wrong. Yeah, of course, that's too. next. So, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, I, and I think um, when we talk about success points, I don't know. It's hard to look back and think what was a particular success. However, you can see moments that you pivoted or, or leapfrogged from one place to the next. Um, 
I don't know about, about you, but I still kind of feel like I'm at the beginning of my journey. Apart from when I look in the mirror and I realise I'm a little bit older, but so I still feel sometimes new at what I'm doing. I'm at the beginning of the journey. It's still fresh and exciting when you're doing something different. So I don't, I don't really feel like a success or even an overnight success. And if, if it's, it's been a long overnight, if that's the case. But I think when we started out, um, we had a very different mission to the one that we have today. And you know that's part of how the business has evolved. In my first few years, it was about surviving. My mission then was. You know, how do I feed my family? How do I make an extra, a few extra pounds to go on a nice holiday? It was those types of things. Um, clearly, that as a mission doesn't inspire people to join you, I'm afraid to say. You know, so you, can, you can't ultimately have an entrepreneurial uh, mission within your business. But back then, um, you know, we were a northern-based business that was punching above our weight, and we were on a train traveling a lot to London. So I guess one of the first things we decided to do was to plant a flag in the ground in London and try and make a success of having an office there. And that took a lot of effort because it took us away from our friends and families and we were often away in the week a lot. So I think attempting to be London-centric, although very expensive, um, you know, began to give us a slightly different footprint and a different perception in the marketplace. I think beyond that, we were successful. We won a few awards. I was lucky enough to meet Richard Branson, all those sorts of things that you do when you're small. But of course, when you're tiny and you're doubling, it's quite easy to double when you're tiny. It becomes a bit harder when you're a lot bigger. So, um, you know, the, the fast track is really for very small companies that can get to, you know, sort of a medium size. And we, we were fortunate enough to be one of those. But, but I think if I was to look back, um, I think up until about 2013, 2014, over that 10-year period, we'd done pretty well from a financial point of view, and we'd attracted some really good people. Some good people had worked with us and moved on and became successful elsewhere. I think, though, the almost the opposite to success happens, which is when you feel a slight sense of dissatisfaction. And that, sometimes that sense of dissatisfaction is the thing that motivates you to try something different or to be something different. And, um, you know, I don't want to sound like it's sort of a negative motivating factor that you're a grumpy, uh, whatever, and you're getting out of bed, you're not happy with your lot. But I think you begin to think about what is it you're really wanting to do with your life and your career. Interim management has been fantastic, but we saw other opportunities like um, uh, remediation or financial services contracting. So we started a business called Brightpool. And of course, we wanted even then, even then we knew that we wanted to be able to have more meaningful conversations with our clients. And so just offering intra management whilst it was really amazing to be able to to provide that service lots of clients wanted an executive search and and we couldn't provide that certainly very difficult to pitch for one when you're called interim partners so you know i think even then we were realizing hang on a minute we probably need to offer more services and um there's some great businesses out there that are search and interim but when we really looked at the marketplace and what we wanted to be we decided that probably wasn't for us we didn't want to be another search and interim business we wanted to be a talent solutions business. So it's probably been at least from 2015 onwards, um, we've been having this sort of itch that we've wanted to scratch. And I've got to be honest, it's been a, a really long journey, but certainly the, the, the success factors or the pivot points as you might describe them, um, they would be uh, things such as buying another business, having the courage to rebrand and to almost to walk away from what you're famous for, famous I say in a, in a famous with a, with a small F, um, but, you know, what you're known for, what you're renowned for, um, you know, that, that was a bold move, I think. And, um, you know, we, we had to be brave about it. But along the way, some really good things are happening. You need to find the right talent. 
that's essential. And you need to create the right structures. You need to have the right governance and you need to right, get the right tech. So all sorts of other things begin to emerge as you realize, hang on a minute, we want to pivot, but what are all those nasty scale challenges we need to go through? And, uh, and I guess there's been a number of small successes in terms of getting, getting through those scale challenges. Fantastic. I mean, you've, you've highlighted sort of four pillars there. One is talent, structure, governance, and technology. So we might uh, explore those in more detail. But it's really interesting. You talked about dissatisfaction. Tony Robbins says that, you know, getting being dissatisfied is one of the best ways to, you know, to achieve more or to, you know, be motivated. If you're satisfied with everything as it, you know, the status quo, then yeah. there's no impetus, right, to make make things happen, to create new things. Um, but what specifically was the, was the source of dissatisfaction? Well, I think um, there's lots of things, really, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I'm quite a curious person. So uh, I think when I was... Um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but we were, we were making good profits. We were perceived to be good in the marketplace. And um, a few people said to me, oh, fantastic, Doug, why don't you sell the business and you could start another one? And I began to think about that as an idea. I thought, oh, this sounds quite good. Maybe I go and play golf or I do what other sort of middle-aged people do when they've just sold their business. Uh, and I, I had a long, hard think about that as an idea. And I guess a couple of things happened when I was terrified of not being able to work. I wondered what I would do with my time. Um, trust me, I do have interests outside of work, but you know this notion of um, sitting on a beach it sounded great for a few weeks, but not, oh, not for the rest of my life. That would be terrible, but, as um, far as I'm concerned. It would be. But uh, yeah. well, I probably I probably burned too much if I was on a beach. <laughs> yeah, but that's another story. But <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think um, uh, I thought to myself, that's probably not for me. I don't want to walk in the same footsteps that I've done. I don't want to sell something and then spend the next five years trying to recreate it. So I was really interested in the story of what happens beyond that point. You know, expensive people are really successful and they sell their company. Um, you know, and you can get to, I don't know, say 25 or 50 million as a turnover in your business. Um, and I thought, well, I kind of know that journey because I've done it. So I'm kind of curious to know what, how do you get from 50 to 100? And that's, that's the journey that I'm hopefully on now. I wanted to know what was the next step. And so I thought to myself, well, if I sell up, I'm never going to know. So uh, I think there was the sense of dissatisfaction came from that. You know, lots of other companies grow and develop. We should be part of that journey too. So how do we do it? Really interesting um, because you're right. Like if someone, if an acquirer buys your business, then the reason they're doing that is because they think they can make it even bigger and better and more profitable, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be interested. For sure. So there's a kind of life cycle where the entrepreneur takes things kind of as far as they know how or they have the energy. They either run out of energy and, and you know, uh, they're, they're, they're wanting to do something different or they've reached the sort of um, ceiling of their own knowledge, experience and, and, and kind of are plateauing and the acquirer goes well we could take what they've got and we could double that and you know increase the value of our of our you know core business or whatever it is they're going to do and you kind of decide well actually I'm interested in that next phase of the journey I'm you know uh, I want to be part of that instead of walk away at this point which is uh, which is yeah that's really interesting um, what Clearly, the jury's out. Uh, <laughs> well, so maybe exactly, you should talk to me like, in four or five years' time. I'm, I'm, I'm still going to determine if I'm that if I'm that man. But uh, you know, hopefully, I am. 
Right. By the way, for our listeners outside the UK, turnover is gross sales or, or you know, gross revenue. Um, that's a term I don't. We use in the UK. I don't know why. Uh, um, yeah, I should, I should not be confused with net fee income. Um, you know, fee income. Exactly. So, well, that's a term we should explain as well. Business, so, because yeah. net fee income also is a British term, and it basically is your gross margin after you've paid your contractors, your interns, and 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 so on, plus any you know permanent billings that you've done. Um, so net fee income, exactly. So. Sorry, I shall, I shall try and use a more international language. No, not at all. I just want to make sure we're clear. Yeah. Rather than throwing around terminology and people are confused about what we're talking about. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so revenue is turnover here and uh, net fee income is essentially your, your billings, what you are invoicing the customer minus what you're paying for your consultants, contract, and by consultants, I mean uh, contractors, interim uh, people temps whatever you have in your in your business um, and definitely like my mentor Romney Raz used to say and I know he didn't invent this term but he's the one I learned it from is you know turnover is vanity uh, profit is sanity and cash is reality uh, and uh-huh. so when we're working with clients and they start talking about um, you know revenue goals we're like we don't really care about revenue. We care about GP or net fee income. Um, let's like, what's that number? That's the one that we want to increase, yeah. right? We're, we're, we're focused the same. Yeah. I think when you get to re- revenue is a, is, a, is a poor indicator on many levels, but I think it, with it comes challenges of scale. So you, you, you start to need, you know, I don't know, better account software or better controls, those types of things. But um, you're absolutely right. Uh, you really, we want to get our, our fee income to the, to the to the level we'd like it to be, and hopefully the the, the corresponding profits. Exactly. So, um, Doug, what would you say has been, you know, some of the or have been some of the biggest challenges that um, or constraints that you've had to navigate in order to get to where you are today? I think it's <laughs> when you're an owner manager. Um, you carry a fair amount of the world of the weight on your shoulders. Um, sometimes your staff, rightly or wrongly, have perceptions of your ability or lack of ability. Um, and it can be a little lonely as a result. So I think what I would recommend, a takeaway for anybody who is an owner-manager or was an owner-manager like me, is, is to make sure they've got a really strong management team around them. That's something I've been building over the last few years. It started by getting a chair. and. Um, you know, putting some governance in place where I was accountable to the chair and the chair then could help me navigate a board and indeed attract the right people. So for me, um, I guess in the early days, you think you should be heroic and try and do everything, you know, uh, run the gauntlet of uh, doing all sorts of uh, jobs that are needed within a business. But the reality is something that hopefully you learn is that you're really only as good as the people around you. And um you know, it's, uh, you have to put your ego aside and you have to say, well, how do we get the right people in here? And it's a leap of faith for them. You know, they don't necessarily want to, particularly as people who've been in big corporates, they want to join a crazy owner manager. Uh, hopefully I'm not, but they don't want to perceive, perceive you to be that way. So I think it's essential that you get the right sort of governance in play, i.e. a chair, other people, a strong CFO that will allow you to attract the, the top talent that you need. Let's let's dive into that because um, you, I mean, hundred percent agree 
you're only as strong as the people that you're surrounded with. And that is, I would say, one of the most important um, strategic aims for any entrepreneur who has ambitions to grow is they have to have an ongoing and continuous focus on attracting great people. Um, in fact, th this is one of the things I was talking to James Kahn about. He's very good at this. Uh, it was one of the secrets to his success when he created Alexander Mann is even when he, there was only a handful of them in the room, you know, in a, in a crummy office, he could persuade people to come and join his team. Um, how have you kind of gone about that? What has been um, your approach? Well, I don't think I've always got it right, if I'm honest. I think I was probably focused on, um, in the early days, finding people that could really drive sales. And so, you know, that in itself is a, is a short to medium term goal. It's fantastic. You, you, you engage with more clients and hopefully you make more money. But if you don't get that broader skill set in your business, all sorts of other things come along and it becomes much harder. So uh, I was fortunate enough to go on a course um, uh, on governance. I, I literally didn't know much about it. And um, somebody said to me, hey, why don't you make it a bit of fun and go to a business school? So I did. So I hopped off to INSEAD on a course. It was around governance. And it was, it was fun because I started learning again. Um, you know, there's plenty of learning on the job. But uh, I was now in a position where, you know, I could, I could listen to others. And the, the key thing that I was given, the key sort of takeaway was um, get yourself a really good chair and, uh, you know, create that governance. And so I did. I went out and uh, talked to a number of people that I knew and I encouraged one, Chris Clegg, to join. He'd been um, involved in running a private equity business before. Uh, so he'd bought lots of companies, sold, sold a lot and, had, of course, sat on many boards and I'd acted as chair for a number of them. So, you know, having his skill set was fantastic. It was uh, an eye-opener because it was just a completely different skill set to the one I had had. And so getting getting Chris to join, um, you know, uh, was really great because all of a sudden then, you know, you can have a, a different relationship when you're trying to hire and attract people. You have that independence, that governance that allows you to reach out to the people that you really need. Okay, this is interesting. Could you pronounce that for me again? Because I never know how to say that. It's part of, is it part of Oxford University's business school? <clears throat> it's not. INSEAD is a business school in Fontainebleau, just south of Paris. Oh, so okay. It's a good European business school. Fantastic. And what is governance? I've heard this term, but what does it really mean? Well, I went on a course there, so, <laughs> you know, so I should know, but I, I don't know if I, I could. Uh, I, th I think governance for me is making sure that you have the right structure um, and the right decision-making in play to help you make the right decisions. So I think for me, um, you know, there was quite a conflict within, which is when you're wearing your CEO hat, you probably want to grow. When you're wearing your shareholder's hat, you want to uh, take out dividends and, and, uh, and, and reward yourself. And, um, you know, when you're an owner-manager, you have certain views and they may conflict with, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, other aspects of your business. So how do you navigate some of those things? So you really need to make, you need to ask yourself the right questions wearing the right hat. And, um, you know, we can now separate some of those things through having a chair. He can help me navigate through that by getting the structure right. So understanding what's the mission of the board and how we can get that to play out in the business. Okay, fantastic. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. 
You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I wanna encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So it was one of your four things. You said talent, structure, governance, and technology. Um, We've talked a little bit about talent, although we kind of segued away. So coming back to, you said initially you were focused on hiring strong sales producers, basically. Um, And then as the business matured, you added people in different areas. Could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I think we've sort of gone from an owner-managed strategy to more of a traditional business strategy. So have a look at the people in our top tier now. We've got two managing partners. Both came from Corn Ferry or Hay Group Corn Ferry. Um, we've got a marketing director who came from Lee Hecht Harrison. We've got a really strong CFO and a really great HRD. So these are the sorts of people that you really wouldn't need when you're half a dozen people. But when you're a bit bigger, you can bring in that talent you know, that, that really can hopefully um, do the things you want to do. So... I don't think I, I personally would have the skill set to be able to um, pivot to being a management consulting business without the likes of the two managing partners we've got, um, Dave and Graham. Or I don't think I would be the right person to help us rebrand and communicate those messages. But we're fortunate that we've got Kerry from Lee Hecht Harrison. Likewise, you know, um, relying on Debbie, our HRD, to help us improve our employee value proposition or Martin to make sure that we're financially robust. You know, you've really got to bring in those people that are just better experts than than you. Um, You know, because if you're an owner-manager and you've started out, you probably have some small company ideas that are great, but the the trick is, is how do you get those people with those really great talents and experiences to join you to help you accelerate? Absolutely. And something I want to ask you then, Doug, is, I can see bringing in uh, people in, you know, finance and marketing uh, because those typically are not, they're completely different skill sets to someone who's come up as a recruitment consultant and, you know, maybe become a a team manager or a director that way. But when you bring in someone someone as a managing director or managing partner, um, that I've seen that spectacularly backfire where someone comes from the outside in uh, to an established team and culture and, um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of problems that can. So how did you accomplish that without, um, well, yeah, let me, let me just turn over to you. What, how did you achieve that successfully? 
Well, we've achieved it. Um, I, again, you know, we, we're, we're, we're hopeful we'll, we'll achieve all that we wanted to. But we brought in um, Dave Lee and Graham Atkins from Corn Ferry. Uh, and they probably, we've probably been talking to them 18 months ago. And I think they joined or signed on the dotted line probably in the spring of last year. And I think they were both in the business by circa the summer period. I think it was that was the sort of timing. Um, so they've been with us nine months now. At the same time, Kerry Simmons joined us as marketing director. So there's been a lot of change here mm. and a lot for our business to accept. So I think it's been, there's some, some real challenges there. There's challenges for our existing team to go, hang on a minute, who are these guys? What's all this about? Um, and then there's some challenges for me as well on the flip side of the coin, which is how do I let them do their job and how do I allow them bring their experience to bear? So I think it's a tightrope, really, if I'm honest. And um, fair play to them for, uh, for joining and for, for doing a great job. But, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to navigate. And I think um, you probably have to really over-communicate. You have to reassure people. You have to try and take them on the journey. They have to understand what you're trying to do. And hopefully, if you're doing that, um, they can see that, you know, that the talent is needed to help us do what we want to do. But you know what? You won't take everybody with you. And that's always frustrating. There'll always be some that go, I kind of liked it the way it was, mm -hmm. or I don't like the way it's going, or I didn't really... Um, you know, fancy these changes. And of course, people may also not like the personalities involved. You know, not everybody likes the idea of building a relationship with another person who's going to be their boss. So I think it's fraught with risk and fraught with challenge, mm -hmm. but you just have to look through the lens of, is this the right thing for the business? And ultimately, will it be the right, the right thing for us to do? And, and hopefully it has been. Fantastic. Um, you said over-communicate. I agree 100%. In fact, um, Craig Savage, uh, I've heard say, you know, you can't over-communicate. Like, it's it's impossible. You need to – that internal communication piece is uh, absolutely essential in order for people to feel like they know what's going on, that they're, they they understand the vision, they understand how, how they fit in and, and you know, how, how they're playing a part you know, in where the business is going and what's in it for them and, and all these things. Um, <clears throat> so as the founder, um, and then you hire senior leaders and put them in place who may do things differently than you would have done it, how, how, does, how, how do you accept or reconcile that? I think you just have to. Okay. Um, I don't know if you have a choice in it. I think sometimes when you want to, you know, drop an email or, or pick up the phone, of course, there's going to be times when you will. Of course, there is. Maybe, maybe you just can't help yourself. But um, you've got to really temper that because if you're going to bring in these people, you have to let them do their job. You have to trust them. And I think if you don't trust them, you'll, you know, there's the the danger that you could undermine them. So you, you have to get out of the way and and be respectful of the role that they've got and the difficulty that they've got in terms of inserting themselves into the business. Um, you have to let it happen. I guess it just basically comes down to how serious are you about growing? Because if you want to keep control of everything yourself and make all the decisions, then th just through bandwidth and, and, and time, you're constraining your growth. Uh, so I guess it's yeah. a decision. Is this a lifestyle, entrepreneurial style business where you get to a certain size and then, you know, you're 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 happy with that um or do you really push on and continue growing and i think the danger of being satisfied as we talked about earlier is maybe there's people in your business who are 
going to outgrow you or be more ambitious and want to progress. And if the if the company's not growing, then you know the, there's not new opportunities for for growth and progression internally either. So then you risk losing some really good people who um, you know who who want bigger things than you really can offer if you're not prepared to really drive growth. Um, so we've talked about talent. You've talked about governance a little bit. Technology, what uh, have you guys done there that has evolved? Um, I think a few years ago, we, were, we did some of the basics. We put in an enterprise um, finance system. We put in Oracle NetSuite. So we've done the things that I'm sure thousands of other businesses do when they grow a little bit. Um, but, you know, we were also running some legacy systems that were not particularly great for us. I don't want to name them because they're probably quite good firms, but we were running tools that were very difficult. They weren't in the clouds. So it was very difficult for us to engage with them, particularly through remote working. And uh, so we, 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 we dropped them. What we've got now is we put in Salesforce. So we've got a Salesforce strategy. Salesforce sits at the heart of what we do. And then we put in some tools that sit on it. So we've got Bullhorn that sits on Salesforce and we run Marketo, which is marketing AI. We've got some other tools around those, but those are sort of critical to us. At the same time, we brought in Peak, which is a cornerstone product to help with learning and development. Uh, we, we use um, Cascade for, for HR tools. So, you know, this, this, we're beginning to put sort of a tech stack together that will provide us with what we need. And um, Salesforce is great because it really gives us some great MI out of it and some opportunities to, to link it. And I think going forward, we want to be able to through our Salesforce strategy, use the other tools that are available through the Salesforce marketplace to create better engagement with our clients, candidates, and participants through the likes of um, Salesforce community. So we're excited about where it can take us to, ultimately. We're, we're developing other products that we think, you know, whether it's assessment products or the like, that we think we could insert into this. But in the, in the short term, the benefits have been powerful because all of a sudden, I think it was probably... Um, it was actually January 2020, we went live with Salesforce. We gave everybody a laptop and we said, hey, you can work remotely or, or whatever. It was just remarkable timing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I was uh, going to say that almost <laughs> was prophetic. Truly remarkable timing that, uh, that you know, people could literally go home, switch on their Surface Pro and uh, you know, you know, jump on Teams or onto Salesforce. Why do you need Salesforce and Bullhorn? I would have thought that there's a huge overlap in functionality there. Well, uh, what we have is Bullhorn sits on Salesforce. Right. So Bullhorn described it as Bullhorn Enterprise. So you know, there's two different products out there. There's what I think Bullhorn might describe as Bullhorn Native. Uh, you know, if anybody from Bullhorn's listening, and that's not the correct terminology, forgive me, but it is Bullhorn Native, which is their own tool. And they know that there's some companies out there want what they describe as an enterprise solution. And so they allow their software to sit on top of Salesforce. So you have the power of the force.com platform and its integrations into finance or other sorts of things, or allowing you all of the great Salesforce capabilities that, that it has, um, but with the recruitment functionality sitting on top of it. So okay. it's a little bit like an app that sits on Salesforce. So it's combining of the two, it's, uh, it's an integration. So, um, you know, it's hard to get right, I know that much, and we've definitely uh, had a, a, it's plenty to digest, but I would recommend it as a tool if other people are listening and they're looking at what is in the marketplace. It's a really powerful solution because it allows you then to connect to other products that you may think are equally valuable, like marketing AI or 
you know, other types of integrations that would allow you to do what you hopefully need to do. It's at what stage did you feel that this was necessary? Because I know um, I have a another client that's a, a hypergrowth company, and um, they also use Salesforce, and they is a powerful platform. But every time they want to customize or add an integration, it's super expensive because you know it's not as simply a case of you know. Um, clicking a few buttons and then things talk to each other seamlessly. There's, it's quite, um, it, so they have to really make a, uh, an, a proper evaluation if they want, okay, well, what do we need it to do? And it's not native. So we want to add this software. So how are they going to talk to each other? And it becomes pretty, um, expensive. What, when do you think you, th that becomes worthwhile? Uh, I don't know. I guess we just wanted something that it wasn't so much future proofed. We wanted the flexibility. We'd been with a system before that really didn't give us any flexibility. And so maybe we should have just gone and got Bullhorn. And in fact, if I, my finance director's here, he would probably say, yeah, you should have gone and done that. But, um, you know, we were thinking, well, what was it? What is it we'd like to have in the future? And so we had this vision of being able to have these tools that could talk to each other through open APIs. And we knew that if we got Salesforce in and we had a Salesforce strategy, Salesforce sitting at the very center, we knew that we'd be able to achieve all that we wanted to do. So I'd say, yes, it can be expensive, but you can bring in some of the expertise in-house, but really you need what I would describe as a good Salesforce delivery partner. And there's certainly some out there. If you can meet one of those and you have that sort of really good relationship where they understand your roadmap, um, then, uh, then, then you can achieve what you need to, to do. And it's not, not as expensive as you might imagine. Fantastic. Doug, looking back um, over the the journey that you've been on, what would you have done differently, you know, if you had a chance to do it again? Wow. <clears throat> Where do I start? I think I would have probably moved away from the name interim partner sooner to provide okay. a broader solution. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's lots of things. Do you, do you know what I think I probably would have done? Uh, I would have probably tried to have held on to people um, some of them that I had at the very beginning. Uh, we kind of accepted that some people would come and go, and I don't think I truly understood the cost of attrition and the damage it can do to your business. So I think I'd probably, you know, try to exercise a little bit more maturity, a bit more emotional intelligence, and have those types of skills in terms of dealing with the the, the proud egos of some of our most successful people. So some of them have gone on, they've become entrepreneurial. Some of them have gone on and had really fantastic careers. I'm grateful that they were part of our business at the time. Uh, so I think it's, it's learning to understand that you are a company of people. I think that would be one of the things that I would have uh, considered more so in my early stages and certainly my management style and how I approach stuff. I'd like to think I'm far less of a bull in a china shop now than I was in my early 30s. <laughs> so I think it's some of those softer skills that... You know, you know, how do you work on your emotional intelligence or your communication style or having greater empathy with where your colleagues are at and, you know, where, they're, where they are in their career paths, all of those sorts of things. Um, I wish I'd had a bit more insight there. I think some of the other stuff, you know, whether it's putting together a system or a website, all of those sorts of things, then I don't have too many regrets. I'm sure I've wasted more money than, than most on these sorts of things, but I've learned a lot from it as well. And I think the collateral damage there is just overspending as opposed to, um, you know, anything else. So I think, I think it would be the, 
the, the, the some of the some of the softer skills that I think you know that good leaders should have today, and I'm I'm hopeful I've got some of that now. Fantastic, that's a great answer. And so, what have been some of the practical uh, things that you've put in place in order, for example, to address um, improving your your employee engagement and and retention of key people? Uh, what do, what does that look like today at uh, New Street Consulting Group? Well, we're we're actually working on our employee value proposition at the moment, and we're asking our colleagues, you know, why they like being here. Um, but along the way, we've had some really good insights as well. We first started doing investors in people many many years ago, and we used to do questionnaires, or investors would do questionnaires to our staff, and we'd get different insights then. So some of the insights were, hang on a minute, you don't do too much on CSR. Could you not do more of that as a business? Or, hey, hang on a minute, you know, we would really like to understand more about what you're trying to do with a business. So we've learned through things, through, through, through those sorts of things. And more recently, we've been in best companies, as you mentioned. Again, there's a similar approach, which is they do an assessment of you. And those, those assessments are really useful. But I think the sorts of things that we've done, um, what have been the learnings from that? Well, I guess... Uh, We've tried a variety of things and we're still trying them. We've tried from one end of the spectrum, we've tried deferred bonuses where we enhance the bonus but defer it so that we're building up a pot that is really valuable to people. So it's kind of a bit like a, an LTIP for recruitment consultants. At uh, the other end of the spectrum, we've got a growth share scheme that's for our board that 25% of the equity is being put into so that they can benefit from it. So there's a sort of what you might describe as the financial things. But of course, they only go some way to solving the problem. It's making sure that you've got a really good collaborative environment, that you can listen, that there's good management and leadership, um, that there's a culture where people can talk and share. Hybrid working has definitely been really, really important. I think pre-pandemic, we were all nervous about it and, and anxious and probably as many owner-managers or CEOs I know that quietly said to, to, to me and to, to the people in the room, we don't think it's a good idea, but I'm absolutely sure that nobody thinks that now. We know that hybrid working is working for us, and indeed it's certainly working for our colleagues. They need that flexibility. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a range of things that you can put in place, but you know, you, you, there's, what we've discovered is you, you need to do not one lever, but probably pull 50 or 100 levers with your colleagues um, it isn't just the case of a financial reward, far from it. And it isn't just the case of flexible working or great tech or really nice office spaces. It's about hopefully showing them that you're doing meaningful work, that they're doing meaningful work, that the business is transitioning into an exciting space and that they can see an opportunity for them to be part of it. So I think those are the sorts of things that I think we're working on at the moment. You know, this notion of giving uh, a clearer view of what our purpose is, um, how they can um, impact upon what we're doing. Those are the sorts of uh, and a, and a, and a nice office or a nice workplace. 100%. Absolutely. Great answer. Thanks, Doug. Um, listen, is there anything I haven't asked you today that you had wanted to share? I don't know, but... Um... Uh, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to watch this and cringe and listen to myself uh, going through this to okay, see if I've missed no anything. Problem. But look, all I can say is I'm, I'm grateful for the, um, uh, for the opportunity, and um, you know, I've really enjoyed it. 
Oh, my pleasure. I have to really enjoy the conversation and uh, lots of insight there, Doug, that I think will be valuable to entrepreneurs who do want to, you know, have that ambition. They want to grow and evolve, you know, from a sort of founder, you know, lifestyle business to, you know, a, a larger uh, small medium enterprise. And, and you've, you know, my that's pleasure. been really valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really wanna help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.